0: Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at JodyStevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at josh'sheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org hey friends welcome back to genuine life recovery of course i'm jody stevens i am joined by randy grimes randy is founder of pro athletes in recovery helping pro athletes overcome addiction navigate the process of recovery which is so awesome he's a former nfl player he's author of the book off center rx we're gonna hear randy's story of being in the nfl of addiction of recovery the nature of opioid addiction which is crazy uh we'll talk a little bit about the pressure to perform uh how to help those suffering and just a bunch of great stuff so randy thank you so much for taking the time to be here
1: thanks for having me i appreciate it
0: absolutely randy how long have you been sober
1: uh coming up on 14 years september 22nd
0: You are a miracle. I love it. I've got uh, 18 years. My husband's got like 21. Oh, wow.
1: Y'all have what I want.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I always tell people if you add it all up, like it's kind of a lifetime. So, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we've got a few things to share with all those years, you know? Right. But it's
1: still just one day at a time. It is.
0: Right. It is. <laughs> so where are you? Are you um, based out of Florida?
1: I, well, I live in Florida. I, okay. I do a lot of work in uh, Texas. I'm in Houston right now, but I'm fixing to head back to Florida when we're through with this.
0: Okay. And, uh,
1: you know, I work at a facility called BRC Recovery in Austin, Texas.
0: Wow. Okay. So, so you're... I'm, I'm kind of
1: a hybrid, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah, you're doing a lot of stuff. I'm like trying to integrate radio career and recovery. So whereas you're like sports and recovery. So, you know, trying to... Get it all to fit in is always right. um, an interesting because you want to get your passion into that. And, you know, you're trying to make it fit and uh, yours fits well because of what we see with sports injuries and things like that. So I totally want to talk about that. Um, but just give the listeners an overview of your football career um, so that they know the team you played for, things like that.
1: Yeah. And I was born and raised here in Texas. Uh I went to I uh, got a scholarship to play at Baylor University,
0: mm-hmm. uh
1: which was awesome. You know, I wanted to play for the great Grand Taft. There's a lot of great players. Me being a good the good Baptist that I am, I wanted to make my mama proud.
0: Woo! Yeah. And go,
1: and go to a uh to a to a Baptist university. But I had a great uh-huh. career there and uh, you know, the the pros came uh, looking and um you know I hadn't I had a great senior year. I really improved my draft position. I moved up. I was a second round pick of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I was the 45th player selected that year in 1983. And, uh, you know, I was just so excited to be going to Tampa, Florida, because they had just gone to the playoffs the year before. Mm
0: -hmm. And and I
1: was a kid from East Texas. I'd never even seen the ocean. So going going out to the seaside community of Tampa, Florida was exciting. You know, I had gotten married after my junior year, so me and my wife were going out there to not only start my professional football career, but also our lives together and our family and everything in the community of Tampa,
0: Florida. Wow. Okay. And so you were with the Buccaneers for how many years?
1: Uh, Ten years. Yeah, I was there from 83 to 92. Okay. And uh, again, I had a great career. You know, we didn't win a lot of games. We weren't a great team. I mean, I played for five different head coaches in ten years. So
0: oh gosh, that a lot, like- a lot
1: of turnover—not only in coaches, but players, front office people, and everything. Oh. But you know, the one consistent thing about the Bucks in all those years was me at center. I seemed to survive every one of those transitions and and changes. And um, you know, I had a great career. I'm paying the price for it now, you know, when try <laughs> to get out of bed every morning.
0: Yeah. But,
1: but, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything, Jody. And, um, yeah. you know, we're grateful for everything that football gave us early in our, our, our lives together.
0: Yeah! Wow, that, that turnover—I I, relate. That sounds like radio, just massive turnover. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Like, yeah. I, 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 I could relate to that on a on a level, and then and then the pressure to perform too, which which I totally want to talk about. So, kind of take us back to the 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 beginning of sort of the end, and then the new beginning. <laughs> You know, I always say, where were you, right? And then we say, what did God do? Uh, And where are you now? So, um, and I particularly want to, you know, I worked for an opiate treatment center too for a while. I, I was sober from alcohol, but... Um, I understand all of that and the difficulties of that, the whole opiate crisis. I mean, you were there in the middle of it all, but so many people um found themselves in in opiate addiction, then turning to heroin, all these sorts of things because of injuries you know yeah. I mean, so kind of take us through through that
1: well, and you know it was uh... I, I was born and raised in a family that there was no no history of substance abuse. You know, my parents never saw them touch a drop of alcohol or, of yeah. course, any kind of drugs. I had a brother and sister. Same thing. They were the greatest role models in the world. You know, this wasn't really supposed to happen to me, you know?
0: Right. And... Um,
1: you didn't have all to... the
0: risk factors like a lot of people right. do and the underlying mental health and and but you know with opiates it's crazy sometimes people touch it in the first time they're hooked so but that's anyway right. you know, yeah yeah that's on. right
1: and and you know they they say that everything is is all addiction is trauma-based and i believe that to some degree and, and I'll get into that a little more later, but it didn't start with any trauma. It started right. with me being willing to do whatever I had to to stay out on the field, yeah. you know, and uh, because I knew that if I wasn't out there in my position, somebody else was going to be, and I did not want that to happen. You know, the first thing I learned when I got to professional football, you know, not college football, college football was still a game. But when I got to professional football, I realized very soon that it was now a job. Yeah. You know, and that yeah. uh, and that if you weren't out there every day, somebody else was going to be in your position yeah. and you just you couldn't afford to let that happen. and And, you know, I just and, you know, I guess we I played in an era where. You know, we used to beat the crap out of each other all week long. You know, it was that coaching mentality where if you don't practice hard, you're not going to play hard. So a lot of the injuries we sustained as, as professional athletes were against each other in our own practices. And mm. um, so I was that guy willing to do whatever I had to to stay out on the field. And, and I looked at it more like a, 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 a justifiable evil, you know, a, yeah. a, a necessary evil to play the game. I mean it was available. We had a we had a narcotic safe that was right in the middle of our training room that was never locked. You could go get whatever you want to. I was getting it from team doctors. I was getting uh, opiates from t- team trainers. And I talk a lot about opiates, but benzos are a big part of my story too. You know, yeah. I always say I always say that opiates stole everything from me, but benzos is what nearly killed me.
0: Yeah, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you and can... all
1: all of this was available in a in an open drug safe in the middle of our locker room. And but that was the culture back then. You know, nobody in in the eight and a half nine years that this was going on, never nobody ever asked me. You know, Randy, why are you slurring your words? Or Randy, why are you nodding off in meetings? Or Randy, why are you late to practice every day? Or or, Randy, why are you uh, uh, the last to leave the building every night and pills are missing out of the drug safe? Nobody ever asked me those questions because I was always playing good. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, that was the mentality back then. And, you know, this necessary evil that I talk to or I talk about progressed to the point where the last two years of my career, I was playing games in complete blackouts. I mean, I was taking so much medication before games that, I, you know, Jody, I would be at home late at night, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, laying on the couch after after playing a, an entire NFL football game somewhere in the country or, or there at our home stadium. And I would start kind of coming out of the blackout and I'd be all beat up and scratched up and fingernails all torn up and dehydrated and everything you are after an NFL football game. Mm -hmm. and I didn't remember any of it, Wow! but that's what it progressed to Mm -hmm. at the end, that necessary evil, and, you know, of course, at that point, I knew that it was a full-blown addiction, but, you know, I was, I wanted that next big contract. I wanted to feed my family. I wanted to be all pro. Uh, I wanted to play the game forever, so I never looked at it like, a full-blown addiction. I looked at it like something I had to do to keep playing the game.
0: Well, and when you're in that industry, it's kind of enabled. You know, you look at even the entertainment industry, you know, even with the artists, it's like, oh, you know, give them a shot of, you know, steroids, get them out there. You know, you've got people, you've got a stadium full of people, you're making everybody money. I'd like to say they care but they they pro- you know and, and you got to be you got to do it. I mean even in broadcasting it's like when you're on you got to be on. Right? I mean so talk about the pressure to perform. It's just you're like you said you're you're a number. You're you got a certain amount of time, you're out there and if you don't do it somebody's going to do it, you know? For really you know? and, and
1: and also if, if you're always on the injury report or you're always back in the training room, seeing the doctor, uh, if you're always missing practice, then you're going to get a reputation of being that hurt guy. Mm. And that's a reputation you were never going to get away from. And what was sure to be a short NFL career, if you ever got that reputation. Right. So, you know, being, uh, the, 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 the man child that I was the way I was raised was, you know, I struggled, I suffered in silence, you know, I, I big boys. Don't cry all that kind of mentality. You know, I, I just, I went about my business and kept my mouth shut. I take myself up even tighter, you know, and took more, uh, opiates. And I got out on that field and I did what I had to do. And, you know, I just never expected to take what I was calling a necessary evil into my private life. And then when I retired and after the game was over, that's when it really spiraled out of control. Okay. Because the injuries just kept getting worse. The chronic pain just kept getting worse. The, uh, the uh, tolerance to the medication just kept getting higher. So I needed more and more of it. And uh, it was, um, that's when the real insanity started was in my retired life.
0: Well, and you were you were in it during the time when it was being heavily prescribed when, you know, and you had all the Purdue Pharma and all this crazy stuff where they're like, well, if you're in pain, that that means your threshold, you know, you just need to take more. And the doctor, you know, the, the pharmaceuticals were telling the doctors and the doctors were saying, if we don't prescribe this, people will just go somewhere else. Like, so the right. doctors were were told to do it. And, and of course the truth what? comes out later, you know, cause I had a friend who almost died from opiate addiction. And I said, well, were you getting street drugs? She said, no, this was all prescribed. I'm like, how do you almost die from something that's prescribed, but that was in the nineties mm-hmm. and that's how it was. Is and that, it... Was
1: one of, that was one of the vital signs was what's the pain level.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So you, uh, you were able to take, uh, did you turn to heroin or anything like that? Or did you not need to? Cause this was all. No,
1: by, by the grace of God. And I don't know if it's just, uh, a, a, a geographical thing, but you know, my, I retired back to Houston here mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I was doctor shopping full time all over Houston. And that was, okay. you know, I probably okay. had 15, 20, maybe 25 doctors at one time. Oh, and you could, yeah. you could do that back then. And, uh, of course, it was a lot more expensive than buying stuff off the street. But, you know, I I never turned to heroin. But, you know, looking back now, that would have been a solution because, uh, you know, doctors were expensive. Pharmacies were expensive. These pill mills that were all over town, they were expensive. And, uh, you know, I was just burning through all the money that that we had put away um,
0: through my career. Were you uh, exposed to fentanyl? Do, are you seeing Not at that athletes point, no. that are... Because we, we would see people come in and it was just like, they're like 23 and they've already had three overdoses and they're scared and it's so scary. I I... I Praise the Lord <laughs> for you because i I talk to people that are sober from opiates, and I, and they, they're like, I would be dead <laughs> you know if oh, I right. could gotten the fentanyl you know and, and you
1: never know you know no, it's one you don't. done with fentanyl yeah, but yeah. no, that that wasn't on the scene back then, and you know, I was getting all my pills from from a pharmacy, and um, you know I didn't have those kind of scares, but I can re- also remember being so sick and so desperate for more yeah. pills that I would have tried anything. So just by the grace of God that my addiction wouldn't in the era that's going on right now. You know? Yeah.
0: yeah. So but you just
1: don't know what you're getting. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you retire from the NFL. You continue in the addiction. So talk to me about that and how bad it got. And then how you got into recovery.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, the new normal for me was ambulance rides and emergency room visits and detoxes and Mm -hmm. arguments with my family and disappointing my family and, you know, letting them down, uh, going through all my finances, losing jobs, losing cars, losing homes, losing friends. That was the new normal for the next 15, 20 years. And, you know, I couldn't stop. I knew why. It was before.
0: like a really bad country song. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was like not funny, but. I just... No, really. You're
1: right. Cause I even oh. lost my dog. In that part of it too.
0: <laughs> but now you're in sobriety. And you got it all back. <laughs> yeah. Slowly, oh, praise surely. the Lord. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But so, but it's the all new... the same. Yeah.
1: That was the new normal. And, um, uh... You know, I couldn't mm. stop the insanity. And, you know, my, I guess the, the perfect storm was coming together in the spring and summer of 2009. I'd lost a very good friend that I played with in Tampa named Tom McGill, mm. uh, a guy I played right next to for many years. And he was doing the exact same thing I was doing. That was mixing uh, opiates and benzos oh, and to treat his uh, injuries he got while he played with the Bucks. Mm. And one morning he just didn't wake up. And that got my attention. Uh, my daughter wouldn't let me come around my first grandchild because I wouldn't fit to be around her new baby. Uh, My my wife realized that she was loving me to death and had to take a step back and Mm -hmm. for her own health and and mental health. And um, it was, um, it, it, it was, I can remember laying on the, we had, we had We didn't lose a house, but we had to short sell it. So, but the new owners weren't going to take it. We moved all the furniture out and everything. And uh, I can remember laying in that vacant house thinking, you know, I was a second round pick of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I was the 1988 NFL man of the year for the Bucks. I was, uh, you know, I've got two great kids that that worship the ground I walk on. I've got a great wife, you know, I've, I've got all these things and here I am laying in the floor of this vacant house, with no utilities, no car, no job, no money. This is what it's come to. Yeah. And that that was all part of that perfect storm that finally made me put my hand up and ask for help. And my wife made a call to uh, somebody in New York at the league office, uh, at the NFL office in New York on Park Avenue and they knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody and that's how I got on an airplane <laughs> September 22nd, 2009 to Florida. And the reason I say that is because back then there was nothing out there for former players. Mm. And, uh, that's wow. where my story kind of starts and it kind of starts while I was in treatment. I didn't know what I was going to do, yeah. but I knew I wanted to make everything that I'd put everybody through mean something.
0: Yeah. Wow. So you literally crawled into recovery. Um, I watched your video on your hands and knees, Now, and you were coming off of... And I think people don't understand withdrawal, and that is an important piece. You know, my brother died of addiction. He would have these grand mal seizures from alcohol, and nobody knew what the... Pardon my French. What the hell was going on, you know? Because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about... You can't just dt from alcohol; you could die, right? Benzos can kill you. So, and while opiates can't, they feel worse than the other two. <laughs> so yeah, you they, they, were, they, you were you, very you sick. wish you would
1: die. Yeah. You
0: probably didn't know at the time dt's from benzos can kill you because people don't just say it. So you're probably crawling in there really sick.
1: You know, it's it's it's, and I talk about this all the time. I had plenty of seizures as a result of benzo withdrawal.
0: Yeah, oh. And, and
1: here's the insanity of, of that addiction as I would drive all over Houston, Texas, looking for more benzos, knowing that I could have a seizure at any time and mm. not only kill somebody else, but myself, you know, and only by the grace of God that I never hurt anybody, that I never had any legal issues, but. Yeah, I had plenty of seizures as a result of benzo withdrawal. And that's what I talk about. That's what I mean when I say the opiates stole everything from me, but benzos nearly killed me.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Benzos are the devil. I know.
0: I know. I was popping alcohol and Xanax uh, in the end Mm -hmm. and was blacking out. And I would um, wake up in like, vomit. And I was like – this is how rock stars like die. Like, you know, not just rock stars, you know, you always hear about that. And, and that was kind of the end for me when I was like, this is like, I'm going to die here, (laughs) you know? So it's very, it's very scary, but when you're in it, you think you're invincible because you're high, you know, you know, you're just like, Oh, I'm cool. You know? And then you get sober, you're scared to death, but then, you go back to getting high again and then you're invincible again. So you're And then you and
1: then when you get into withdrawals you're
0: desperate. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. Oh man, so did you did you do methadone or anything like that or did you just detox?
1: Yeah, I detoxed and, okay. and you know because of all the seizures they took the detox really slow. I, I detoxed yeah. for pretty much a month at the treatment because I was in treatment for 90 days and I was going to also get a knee replaced. I was going to get some surgery on the other knee. Uh, I was going to get some neck uh, stuff done. So I came in with a plan uh, to get out of some of the chronic pain I was dealing with. Uh, But they had to get me, my body was so toxic. that They they had to get me to that next phase before they could do any of the surgeries on me. And uh, so they took it really slow, but I remember, I remember it was it was a couple weeks into the process and um, the detox process, and I was sitting at a picnic table right in the middle of the campus, and and for some reason I used to get up and write every morning in a spiral notebook about how I was feeling, what's going on, what's going on around me, and um, this this particular morning I was just sobbing uncontrollably, and. Um, I couldn't get a grip on myself. And and I was thinking it was, it was kind of like for the first time in 20 plus years, I was having to deal with life on life's terms, clean and sober and think about the huge wake of destruction that I left back with my family, my friends, my reputation, my finances. And it was just, it was at that. And I didn't think I had the courage to finish that treatment. You know, I didn't think I could do it. I was just so consumed with, throwing pills down every day. And it was like at that very second, and this was on a Wednesday morning at 8.45, two weeks into the process, I'll never forget it. It was like somebody came up behind me and draped a warm quilt around my shoulders. And I say quilt because I remember feeling weight and warmth. And at that very minute that 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 was going on, it was like that obsession to use was lifted I had this overwhelming sense of confidence that I could do this and that I also wanted to, like I said earlier, I also wanted to make it mean something. Everything that I'd put everybody through and put myself through and reputation, all that, I wanted it to mean something. And I didn't know what. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I mean, I had a lot of work to do on myself still, you know, but I just... I, I knew I wanted to do something. And that was kind of the the birth of pro athletes in recovery. Uh, I knew that that there was a lot of guys that I'd played with and against out there who, just like me, were suffering in silence. Big boys don't cry. You keep your mouth shut, you know. And uh, I knew there was a lot of guys out there like that. And I wanted to reach them. And I wanted to let them know that, that they're not alone, you know, because I can remember thinking so many times, I'm the only one like this, you know, out of all the guys up, you know, all the NFL players that I played with and against, I'm the only one screwing up like this. And and I'm not, I wasn't. And um, so that was kind of the birth of of the nonprofit. And I only wanted to be a bridge between those players and resources, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Wow. And now it's, it's grown into, um, a, a pretty big organization. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, when I started going out and sharing my story, I went to the NFL. We started an organization called the player care foundation. This was like mm-hmm. a year over a year after I worked on myself, you know, I went to sober living, uh, I, I came, I volunteered for the alumni for months and months, just calling people, you know, uh, The treatment center would let me, after my 90 days was up, the treatment center would let me come back on campus and uh, just let me hang around them. Just let me be in that safe place because I needed that accountability for a long time. I needed people to hear my voice and see my eyes. You know, I needed that. I needed that accountability. So they would let me come back on campus and I, I started making some alumni calls for free. Um, and and just kind of stayed around the business and my safe place for over a year. You know, my family didn't understand why I didn't just rush back to Houston after 90 days. And I just wasn't ready. You know, yeah. there was too many triggers here, too many, too much going on here. And I needed sober living here. I was 49 years old moving into a sober living house with a bunch of 20 something year old kids out of the Northeast, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I was desperate to stay, I was desperate to stay sober, and I didn't trust myself out there without all that accountability.
0: What was recovery like? What was the program? What were sort of some light bulb moments for you, things you took away from that experience that maybe you still use today in daily recovery?
1: Well, I'll tell you what it is. And, you know, people ask me all the time what I miss most about football, and it's not the game. I don't miss being out on that field or under the lights between the bleachers. I miss the locker room.
0: Yeah, and that's <laughs>
1: what that's what the program has given me back is being around like-minded people that have been yeah. to the places that I've been. You know those deep dark places that we go to in our addiction, and uh, mm-hmm. you know I just uh, the, the whole program of you know of recovery twelve steps. You know I'm an abstinence-based guy but i also know that one size doesn't fit all so i certainly don't judge anybody for their recovery as long as they're recovery you know mm-hmm. and uh, i know there's many different paths there but um it's just the, the, the whole program and the community and everything and that's that's what I, that's that that was the beauty of it for me And, and, you know, I'd been to other detoxes and I'd heard about 12 Steps and I'd heard about AA and NA and all that. And I just thought, really, that's going to get you sober? (laughs) Well, yeah, when you buy into it, it does Mm because it keeps you accountable and it keeps you around people like you. And that's the most important part for me is to have that community.
0: Yeah. So many people, when I say, ask them what finally clicked, they say, well, it was when I started listening and doing yeah. what they said, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, when I gave up the pride, you know, well, it sounds like you grew up Baptist. So God is a part of your life. This is recovery with a biblical aspect to it. I don't know if that's part of your life. Where was, where was God sort of before in the middle and after all this in, in your world? And is he a part of your world today?
1: Absolutely. Always has been, you know, and that yeah. was part of the guilt and shame
0: yeah. through my
1: addiction, you know, was how I'd let him down. You know, he had blessed me with so many opportunities. He blessed me with the opportunity to be in the right place at the right time around the right people so many times. Yeah. And here I was letting him down and not and disappointing him. So that was a huge part of it. And, um, you know, my mom, you know, she she had me in church every every Sunday and Wednesday night. I married a preacher's daughter, as a, as a matter of fact. So I had that on the other side. Oh, gosh. Too, yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of times uh, faith based people feel like it's a moral. Yeah. A moral yeah. issue when it's not a moral issue. Yeah. You know, this is something that it can jump on and once it jumps on your back and it's got yeah. you you know it, yeah. it, it 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 it's it's tough so but no it's it's a big part of our lives now that's how we raised our children that's how mm. we were raised and that's great um you know I'm I'm grateful for god for the colleague I, I shouldn't really be here right now yeah
0: yeah well and i think he's never disappointed in us. I mean, sure. But, you know, I always tell people, it's like, well, look at the Bible, look at the stories, look at human nature. It's, it's a huge love story of, and they were, you know, the Israelites were evil and he brought it back and they were evil and he brought it back. and they, You know, I mean, it's almost comical in a way, but, but it it's, it's the way, like when you're, crawling into recovery right you're on the floor in a fetal position that's when god says see without my power this is this is as good as it gets for you right like this is this is what it is so that's when we're finally ready i think and he's just waiting for that he's not mad i don't think you know i don't i you know he's just he's like well randy this is as good as your life gets with you in control, you know, right? <laughs> I mean, and we're blessed when we get that, you know, because not everybody gets that and then they may not be saved, you know what I mean? And so right. you kind of look at all that and go, well, it's all for a reason because now God's up here instead of right. here, right? You know? and and i
1: struggle sometimes talking to people and using terms like higher power and you know yeah what 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 is it that you look to outside of yourself you know and and it's my my job or my dog or whatever you know Mm -hmm. and and, uh you know you just kind of hope that through the process through the community through the program that they find What's really going to keep them sober, you know, every yeah. day? And, um, yeah, that's that's huge. That's a big part of it.
0: Yeah. So, talk to me about your family. You have wife, kids, and stuff. They obviously went through all of this with you. And it sounds like when they altered their behavior a little bit, got, you know, I always tell families it's like, what I would recommend for you is to get some help for you and to change the way you're acting because you, you know, and usually that gets met with a little bit of anger, but um, it sounds like that maybe from watching some of your videos, a little bit of what happened where the family was like, okay, we're going to get some help and make some changes, shifts the family dynamic a little bit.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I always say that when, when families get well, addicts get well, yeah. And the reason I say that is, you know, when we go in and do interventions, and and my wife and I have done plenty of them, you know, we, we've had that. God has blessed us with that opportunity to to get down in the trenches and on the front line, and 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 meet the people where they're at. But you know, it's um, when they learn healthy boundaries, when they learn to keep them, when they learn to not have a weak link somewhere where the addict can take advantage of then that's when people get well, because I know with boundaries is what made me put my hand up and ask for help. Yeah. And in every successful intervention that we've ever had, it's when the family stood together and held their boundaries and there wasn't a weak link. And that's when people got well. So, um, you know, we, yeah. we, I, 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 I preach that all the time. And yeah, a lot of times I upset people, but you know, this is life and death. Yeah. And, um, I don't, I don't really worry about making people mad because I know what works and I'm not saying let somebody hit their bottom because a lot of times we don't recover from our bottoms, you know, whether it's a felony or, or a health issue or God forbid, you know, you die. But, you know, I I do believe in helping somebody raise their bottom up so we can, we can meet them before they hit it. And, you know, Jody talking, uh, we were talking about the spirituality part of this. You know, it's almost, and right or wrong, but and, and you, tr- you know, we as addicts, we try to justify everything, you know, and find something, some, something good. That, but it was like it was almost like I wonder if God wasn't allowing me to go through all that, so that I could do what I did now, you know, or what yeah. to do what I could do now. Uh, And that's to reach out and help other players that have been through this and not just football players, you know, baseball, jockeys, NASCAR, golfers, you know, pretty much every sport you can think of uh, to help them through it. Because, you know, we didn't play We didn't all play the same sport, but we all have the same issues when it's over. When we don't have the uniform anymore, when we don't have the playbook anymore, when we don't have the crowds anymore and uh, we're lost, you know, when we don't have that locker room anymore and whether it's baseball, or football or golf or, or, or even riding a horse, you know, a a jockey, um, MMA fighter, you know, when they don't have those crowds, when you, when you don't have that uniform anymore, we don't know who we are. And, um, you know, that goes for veterans and first responders and, you know, people that identify with the uniform and the work that they do, because, you know, I was guilty of letting football become who I was instead of just something I was good at.
0: Yeah. Well, and that in itself, interestingly enough, is the definition of codependency. That's why when we say alcoholics and codependent, yeah, they're the same people. It's being defined by anything outside of yourself. And I had the same issue when I resigned from a morning drive position. It was like I was almost suicidal because I didn't know who I was. And it was like, I got to get back on the radio so I can be somebody because if because, you know, and it was just it was horrible. It was like a slow death. And Mm -hmm. the the Lord really showed me I, I imagined myself dead on the floor, like killing myself. And he said, yeah, that is you. That is the death to self. (laughs) You got to kill that piece. And he brings it back. He brings it back around like what we're doing now. But it is, it's a slow death. And if you don't have that community it can be so hard. And, you know, you look at um, what you're doing is so great because it is very, you know, you look at people like Britney Spears and it's like, oh, she's she's crazy, she's on drugs. And we just, you know, the, the media just loves it. They love to watch these people suffer. And it's like, well, maybe she has an addiction. Like, like maybe right. she needs help, people. Like, where's <laughs> the grace? And so I think, um, what you're doing helping athletes is really important because we need to love and support these people you know a lot of these players like the Raiders oh my god I mean there's always my husband's a huge Raiders fan because my mother-in-law's from Oakland and so but you know there are always so many drug problems and then it's just it's like oh isn't this funny you know the one player that crashed his car remember and he, he killed someone that was we did a little show about that and it's like that's we got to help these people you yeah. and you're doing it talk to me about all, all the work you're doing mm-hmm.
1: well and yeah I am helping a lot of former professors. that's how it all started you know that's how pro athletes in recovery started yeah but, you know, we really work with everybody. And I, and sometimes mm-hmm. I, I box myself in and people think that I only work with athletes. And no, we don't. We work with everybody. Anybody who wants to get free from this disease of addiction, that's who we work with. And, you know, I've got to give a shout out to my wife because she's the real hero of yeah. this story. You know, she's the one who, you know, and, and, and she'd be the first to tell you there was a lot of times that she wanted to leave me, but God wouldn't let her. <laughs> and um And she hung in there, and uh you know it was her boundaries and 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 everything that finally made me get get help but she 's been awesome through this, and she helps me with so many people and a matter of fact, she 's flying back to Tampa with a player that was just here in in Austin uh, getting help so she's she does it all she 's got the greatest patience in the world she 's the greatest Christian woman that i 've ever met and uh you know, she's the hero of the story and my kids, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's what the book was all about. The book, when I started that book, I just wanted it to, I wanted it to be a healing tool for my family. I wanted everybody who was affected by my addiction to, to have a platform in it and to use it as a way to get past everything that I'd put them through. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't care if it sold a single copy. But I wanted I wanted everybody to have a, a, a part in it, you know, my kids, mm-hmm. my wife, my, my 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 brother, my sister, my mom, um, and um, I, little did I know that it would would be doing so well out there, you know. And um, I'm just I'm really proud of all that that's happened through the book Off Center.
0: That's amazing. Um... Uh, for those that are listening, still struggling with addiction, maybe a family member, what would you say to them? Kind of like some, some parting words of wisdom, words of advice, things like that. Things you want people to know that are still struggling.
1: Well, first of all, I want people to know it's okay to, to not be okay. Yeah, but you've got to ask for help. You know, yeah. there there's hope and there's help out there, but you've got to ask for it. You know, you can't just continue to, to suffer in silence and think it's going to get better on its own. You know, for families out there, you know, I I, I preach it all the time, and I'll say it again: when that, when families get well, addicts get well. When families learn healthy boundaries, they get well. When they take 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 the time to do some self care. And, and focus on themselves then they get well you know uh, those are those are the the, the highlights of, of what i would tell anybody that's struggling or even a family member that's struggling with a loved one that that needs help you know it's okay to not be okay and boundaries work
0: awesome randy that's great advice thank you so much for coming on for sharing your story the work that you're doing tell people how they can connect with you the business organization book website any of those yeah, types all of things. That. <laughs> well and
1: i'm on all the social media so if okay. you can't find me you're not looking very hard.
0: i found you <laughs> you can also
1: go to proathletesinrecovery.org uh, you can find the book at offcenterthebook.com Uh, Of course, I'm at BRC Recovery here in Austin, Texas. Uh, You can find me uh, there on that website. Um, And then all the social media, you know.
0: Awesome. Randy Grimes. Randy, thank you so much for coming on the program and sharing your, as they say, experience, strength, and hope. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at JodyStevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, JodyStevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.